Jesus healed the, paraly- uh, the paralytic. Uh, they asked, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? When he dined with Levi, he called him and, and uh, dined with him, a tax collector and his friends. The scribes of the Pharisees saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. They said, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? This week's sermon text opens with a uh, similarly accusatory question. So now if you're able, please rise out of respect for God's word as I read to you this morning's sermon text, Mark 2, verses 18 to 22. This is the inspired word of God. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one pulls new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us now. We pray that you give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are new hearts. Hearts of flesh that may be molded to your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the sovereignty of God is a funny thing. Um, Three weeks ago, I went to Ohio for our Presbytery meeting. Uh, Chris preached that Sunday. It was my Sunday off. The text that I'm preaching today was actually the text I had originally planned on preaching the next week. Uh, But then as that Sunday came along, uh, things transpired. Uh, You'll recall there was the shooting at Michigan State, and I thought that I should address that somewhat. I was going to preach on evil, suffering, and the sovereignty of God, Uh, but then ended up in the sovereignty of God. Uh, I wasn't here that Sunday either because my mom uh, was preparing to die, so I head back to St. Louis for that. Uh, She did indeed die that Sunday afternoon, and we had to make plans and arrangements to take care of funeral and burial and all those things. So I was gone last Sunday as well. And so now I return to Mark on this Sunday. And it turns out that this is the perfect Sunday for me to be looking at this text specifically. We're now in Lent, right? You might have noticed the purple up here I'm wearing. It signifies the season of Lent. It's a season uh, which has often been seen as Christians as a time of fasting, a time of introspection where we look to our sin and we, we perhaps 
take on different fasts of different types. Uh, each person kind of has his own interpretation of what that means, but the season of Lent in general is a time of, of introspection where we consider our sinfulness, and uh, there are 40 days in Lent. Now, that's kind of tricky because uh, it begins at Ash Wednesday, it goes to Easter Sunday. You'll notice if you do the math, there's actually more than 40 days in there, and that's because it doesn't include the Sundays throughout the uh, season of Lent. Because each Sunday is a celebration of the Lord's resurrection. Each Sunday is a mini Easter, as it were. And so it's a time for joy, a time for celebration, a time for exaltation. We don't lament the Lord's resurrection in any way. But uh, it is that season where people do fast. We're also today partaking of the Lord's Supper. Feast which Christ has ordained for us to partake of uh, as we uh, recall his death. And so we, we are faced today with, with this tension between fasting and feasting. That's precisely what our text talks about. And we see in it that the Pharisees were wrong about certain things in their understanding of what religion should look like, what what true faith should look like. And the reality is, if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're often wrong about the same things. First thing that they're wrong about is the very nature of fasting, right? John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, we need to understand that fasting isn't necessarily a bad thing. That's not at all what is being said. But the people came to Jesus and said, why are these other guys fasting, but your disciples don't recall, we, we need to recall that this is right on the heels of his feasting with Levi and his tax collecting friends, right? They, they'd been together, they'd been having these feasts, these celebrations, and now we don't know if it actually chronologically happened right after that, or if this is just a stylistic thing where, as Mark is telling us, he put these two things right next to each other to kind of make that contrast. Either way, it's really irrelevant as we look to it. What we need to understand, though, is is the customs of the day. We need to understand that, that um, the Old Testament had actually ordained and ordered, commanded one fast, a fast that took place on the Day of Atonement, uh, that day where they, where they uh, had a national day of repentance and forgiveness. Uh, but by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had developed this understanding that, that in order to be properly righteous before God, uh, you needed to fast two times a week. Actually, it was on Mondays and Thursdays for what it's worth. Uh, this was prompted at least in part by the fact that they saw religion as something that, that was supposed to be uh, somber and devoid of joy, right? You know, that, that it was this thing that you had to do if, if you had a smile on your face as you were worshiping, you were doing it wrong in their eyes, right? That, that this should be a, a, a dour thing that we go through. So the Pharisees refrained from washing. They put ashes on their head. They wore their clothes in a disheveled manner to show how mournful they were over their sins, to show that they were, uh, in this sense, uh, uncomfortable and unhappy with it. 
And they wanted you to know that they were uncomfortable and unhappy with it. And they wanted you to know that they were more spiritual than you because they were uncomfortable and unhappy with it. They wanted to make a big show of it. And they had fasting all wrong. Not only in the frequency, like I said, it wasn't required to be two times a week like they said, but also in the manner they went about. Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and, uh, so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, we do a God a, a great misservice when we see him as one who is a, a miser sitting in the sky waiting, waiting to be angry at us when we're having fun, when we're having a good day, when we're having a joyful experience. That's not the purpose of God at all. That's not the way he is. He actually wants us to have a full and meaningful life. He wants us to enjoy that for which we were created. He wants us to realize the true joy, though, comes from following him. Wednesday night, Chris shared with us Isaiah 58, where we, where we read that God proclaimed, is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you See the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. You see, God is looking to us to live a radically other-centered life. This is the kind of life the early Christians lived. And they were actually accused of being drunkards for the joviality of their nature. Now, this doesn't mean that we're always happy if we live this kind of life. Of course, we we won't get everything we want when we get it. This world is sadly fallen and broken. Sickness and death still abide. My mom just two weeks ago today uh, died and I grieve, but I do not grieve as others do who have no hope, right? Because Christ Jesus was my mom's hope and he is my hope and he is the joy of our salvation. And beyond the, the brokenness of the world, beyond sickness and death, there's the reality that our desires are, are disordered because uh, we are broken. We, we want the wrong things oftentimes, and we, we chase after them, and, and we expend our time and our energy and our, our hope on them but when we find our hope and joy in them, we'll find that, that, that our hopes will be dashed. But when we find our hopes and joys in Jesus, then we find that joy can be ours even in the midst of grief, even in the midst of sorrow. That's at least part of what Jesus meant when he said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus uses the wedding imagery here to kind of, 
kind of make this point. A wedding is nothing uh, if it's not the start of something new. It is, it is a, a joyful experience. It is the beginning of a, a new relationship, and it would be thoroughly inappropriate to be gloomy and, and, and morose at a wedding. I mean, if, if you were sitting there at a wedding, you know, and we're coming along, and the groomsmen comes out, you know, come out, and the, the groom and the, the, the bridesmaids, and then the bride has walked down the aisle, and there's the music, and, and all the pageantry and all the joy, and you were sitting there wailing and moaning and weeping throughout the ceremony, not, not sniffle, sniffle, oh, this is so beautiful, but oh, this is terrible, oh, I would hope somebody would kick you out, right? I mean, the groomsmen, the best man should come grab you and physically remove you from the wedding at that point, Right? Because it's not meant, you can't do that at a wedding. It's, a, it's an occasion for joy, for celebration. And Jesus says here to them, in verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? You see, they, they didn't understand not just the, the, the very nature of fasting, they also didn't understand the very identity of Jesus. See, Jesus was indeed fully man. They understood that. I think sometimes we in the church forget that. I think we forget the humanity of Jesus. We think he is somehow other completely and not at all like us. But the scriptures tell us something different. He is fully human in every way. He is tempted just as we were tempted but without sin. He shares in our sorrows and in our griefs. He is fully human but what the Pharisees did not get was that he is fully God. Right? Jesus uses this bridegroom imagery. The, the bridegroom language evokes the fact that, that the Old Testament called God the husband or groom of his people, Israel. Right? One example, Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And now Jesus applies that moniker to himself. He says, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? He's referring to himself as the bridegroom. And a, and a little cultural background here is important for us. Uh, their tradition when they had a wedding was not like ours. There are obviously in every culture are different traditions on how weddings are going to go. Um, but in their tradition, uh, the bride and the groom did not take off for a week-long honeymoon after the wedding. What would happen instead is they would have a wedding feast. It would be kind of part, think across maybe between a wedding reception and an open house, right? The, except the open house stretches for a week, all right? And a week-long open house, and they would have, uh, they would have, much like we have groomsmen and bridesmaids, they would have a group of people who were called the guests of the bridegroom. They would be his friends, and they were invited to share in the joy of the celebration and, and were supposed to be there to make sure that everyone is having a joyful celebration. That was their duty for that week. So much so that the rabbis actually had a rule that they, they stated 
that all in attendance on the bridegroom are relieved of all religious observances which would lessen their joy, right? So if you were one of the guests of the bridegroom, right, who were supposed to be making sure everything is joyful, you actually, even though they thought you had to fast on Tuesdays or uh, two days a week, they said if you were one of the guests of the bridegrooms, you didn't have to, you didn't have to do that anymore, right? Because this is a joyful time. So you see what Jesus is saying here in verse 19. He says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. He's saying to the Pharisees, you know this. You know, this is your own rules, right? He's saying, say, you know that, that if the bridegroom is with them, they're the guests of the bridegroom, they cannot fast. And we have this truth that we know we're not just the guests of the bridegroom. We are the very bride of Christ. How wonderful that is. We have the promise of Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. But we go beyond that. We are united with him. We are joined together with him so that he indwells his church by his grace. We have become one with him. He has sent his spirit to us that wherever we go, he will go with us. Wherever even two or three are gathered in his name, there is he with us. We who had been on faithful, we who once were alienated and hostile in mind. He has made us his very body and this he has done in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. There's a mystery to all this, but as Paul says in Colossians 1, God has chosen to make known how great are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Right? For your maker is your husband, Isaiah says. The Lord of hosts is his name. Isaiah goes on to say, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called Right, so Jesus is fully man. He is fully God. He's also our redeemer. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we were all once slaves to sin and the wages of sin is death. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So it is written in verse 20 here that the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day an ominous, ominous note that Christ brings here right saying that he will one day be taken away from them it it recalls the words of Isaiah 53 verse 8 by oppression and judgment he was taken away and in that context we remember he was taken away like a lamb led to the slaughter and so we see that Jesus is not just our redeemer, but our sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes that sin upon himself so that we are relieved of the penalty that we would have had to pay. And in all this, we learn something about the very nature of the kingdom. That's our third area where the Pharisees had something wrong. They, like many in their day, were looking for the renewal of an earthly kingdom. They, they were looking for the Messiah to come and drive out the, the oppression and throw off the, the shackles and, 
and, and get rid of the non-believing rulers who had come in and were governing over them and restore some kind of golden age of the kingdom from their past. We're often the same way, don't we? We think that if only, you know, we could have some kind of political movement that would restore the, the golden age of, of our recent past. You know, it would come through the passing of certain laws or the electing of certain candidates, the, then everything would be good. If we could only get the politics to go our way, then the culture would be good and, and, and things would all be good then. But we need to realize the truth of the matter is that in the kingdom of God, we do not follow the elephant. We do not follow the donkey. We follow the lamb, the lamb of God who is slain for us. Right? Because in God's kingdom, he's not merely looking to kind of tweak things, right, to, to get things back to how they were just a little bit ago. He's not looking to just kind of patch things up and kind of fix this thing and get it back on the right course to where it recently was. He's looking to do something altogether new, right? And he starts with us. We read it in our Unison Scripture reading, right? If anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He doesn't say the old is, you know, still there and it's kind of just touched up. He doesn't say that we're kind of fixed up. No, a new creation being made new in Christ Jesus. Christ goes on to talk about this in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, a worse tear is made. The idea, right, if you have a garment and the cloth is shrunk, from, from being washed and used and washed and used and washed. And, and then there's a, a tear in it and you try to patch that up with fresh cloth once the patch is washed and used and washed and used and washed and used. It will shrink, it will pull, and the tear will become worse. Right? He says nobody does that. But the reality is some of us want a patchwork Jesus. Right? We want to... We want to have a, a patchwork faith where we just add Jesus to, a, to, to what our life is. We like our life as we have it, and we figure if we put just a little bit of religion on it, then everything will be good. But Jesus isn't interested in being an add-on to your life. He wants to be our everything. For no greater love has one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And this is exactly what... Christ has done. If we had started our unison scripture reading just a couple verses earlier, we would have read, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So while we can do nothing to earn our salvation, the Bible is equally clear that, that we have been saved by Christ, that we will become new people to live new lives to his glory. Jesus makes the point another way, right? No one puts new wine into old wide skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. The wine will be destroyed, so the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wine skins. It's the same idea, right? They took the the skin of goats and tanned it and, and it was still flexible and they put the new wine in it and it would ferment and as it ferments it expanded and the, the goat skins could expand with it but once they've already expanded that that's all they are right and 
if you put new wine into an ex already expanded wineskin, it won't have no room to expand and it will tear. So Jesus is saying that things now are not the way they've already been. Though his kingdom is not of this world, it is breaking into this world. And that's the takeaway from this passage, or at least from this sermon, right? The true religion is to be a joyful experience. True religion is to be a Christ-centered experience. True religion is to be a kingdom-oriented experience. For the victory that Jesus wins is not a, a political victory, at least not in the sense of being according to our political powers and our political process. His victory is a far greater and yet counterintuitive victory. He who is the king of kings becomes a servant to all and calls us to do the same. He tells us that in order to be first, we must be least. He tells us that in order to truly live, we must die to ourselves. And he who is life itself dies and in so doing defeats death. As we come to this table today, we proclaim that very death. But the feast is not a mournful one, is it? It is not a mournful one because it is a joyful feast of victory in Christ Jesus. As I considered this in my preparations this week for this sermon, I was reminded of a hymn we used to sing at church where my mom took me as a kid. There's a refrain after every verse that said, this is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. And the verses told us why it was a feast of victory. It said, worthy is Christ, the lamb who was slain, whose blood set us free to be people of God. Power, riches, wisdom, and strength, and honor, blessing, and glory are his. Sing with all the people of God and join in the hymn of all creation. Blessing, honor, glory, and might be to God and the lamb forever. Amen for the lamb who was slain, has begun his reign. Hallelujah. This is the feast of victory for our God. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. In God's word, the Apostle Paul warns us not to partake of the Lord's Supper unworth, unworthily. And, and worthy partaking of the Lord's Supper is nothing but this. It's simply to know how unworthy you are of Christ by virtue of your sin and to know that he has made you worthy by virtue of his grace. So if that's not true from, of you, I... If you don't know that to be true, if you don't trust that, if your faith is not in Christ Jesus, then I, 
urge you to refrain from partaking of the Lord's Supper, but, but for those of you who it is true, we, we make it our practice here at Calvary to proclaim our common faith before we come to the Lord's table. We, we do that uh, not, not because our faith is something by which we earn our place with Christ, but because faith itself is a gift from him. And it's only through that faith that we might partake of him as we come to this table. So let us now join in proclaiming the Apostles' Creed. It's an ancient statement that outlines the faith that is not just common to us, but to all those throughout the church, throughout the world, throughout the centuries, who have truly believed. You'll find it in your bulletin. My brothers and sisters in Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we, we come before you awed at your holiness and thankful for your grace. Amazed at the great depths to which you have gone to love us, even laying down your very life for us on the cross. We now partake of this meal as you have commanded us, and thereby proclaim your death, your death, which was a substitutionary death, a death that was in our place and clothed with your righteousness alone. We come before God. We thank you now and pray that you would strengthen our faith through this meal and cause us to be those who truly do live our lives for you and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The elders now, please come forward to help serve.
Lord Jesus, our God, our Redeemer, our Bridegroom, is with us always, and yet in a special way today as we partake in faith, he is with us mysteriously and even more deeply. And to all who trust in him, he says, take, eat, this is my body.
bulletin, you'll find hymn 196, At the Lamb's High Feast We Sing. If you're able, would you rise now as we sing that together? wonderful truth that is. I love that line in the second verse where the paschal blood is poured, death's dark angel sheathes his sword. I hope and pray that you know that to be true, that in Christ Jesus, though you may die, you will forever live. Now receive the benediction. May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.